Well, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I have been growing hungry. I've been longing, hungering, craving for a particular meal, a meal that we haven't shared in a long time. And uh, I know that many of you, brothers and sisters, are craving it as well. Some of us may remember what this meal used to be like. For others, maybe the memory has faded a little bit. I'm talking about the meal that Jesus gives us to celebrate as his people. The meal that binds our hearts together to one another and to the Lord. The meal by which we look back at his perfect sacrifice and look forward to his glorious coming. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. Have you been hungering for that? Well, after 18 months of the COVID-19 pandemic, I am thankful and glad to share with you all that the government has finally granted us permission to take communion as a church. Praise the Lord. There are a number of things changing. You'll see a number of changes come and restrictions lifted over the next few weeks. Uh, and of course, there are a number, number of logistics involved in uh, taking this meal. So we're not doing this this morning, but we will be doing it soon. Uh, and we'll be participating at a special time of communion uh, for our members of ECC on our members meeting on Wednesday, September 22nd. So please mark Wednesday evening, September 22nd on your calendars. Again, a members meeting in person right here in this room. Praise the Lord for that. Again, after 18 months. So please mark that date, and then we will resume taking the Lord's Supper in our regular Friday worship services starting in October. So today, we're taking a break, short break for the next few weeks from our Leviticus series, and today particularly, as we prepare to enjoy this special meal once again, I want to prepare our minds, and more importantly, prepare our hearts by considering what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper, about how we should approach the Lord's table. Our previous senior pastor, Pastor Jeremy, about uh, three years ago, preached an excellent sermon on baptism and the Lord's Supper. You can find that online. But given the transience of this uh, place, of the church that we're in, you know, new people coming in constantly, and given that we've had 18 months of uh, a gap of abstaining, <laughs> it's good for us, I believe, to reorient our hearts, uh, reorient ourselves to the meaning of this meal. What does it mean? Meaning, meaning, meaning is key. You see, it's very common for Christians, even sincere, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, to come to the Lord's Supper not really thinking about what we're doing. Uh, we come, you know, saying, okay, somehow Jesus is going to bless me in this moment. This is something special. We, we eat this little piece of bread, drink the little doll-sized cup of juice, and, you know, go through the motions sometimes. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do. We cannot, we must not reduce the Lord's Supper to mere ritual. No, no, no. Jesus wants us to know what we're doing, why we are doing it. 
He wants us to understand how we're supposed to come when we eat and drink at his table. And in this meal, Jesus promises to bless us. But his blessing comes through meaningful participation in his meaning-filled meal. So brothers and sisters, maybe after 18 months, you've forgotten what it was like to come to the Lord's Supper. Maybe you in the past have taken it and participated without thinking about what's happening. Maybe you've had questions about communion and you never knew who to ask. You always wish to learn more. This morning, my goal for us is to look at what Scripture says concerning the Lord's Supper so that we can prepare our hearts and maximize our joy when we celebrate communion as a church. And we're going to look at five ways that the Scripture teaches us to approach the Lord's Supper. Scripture calls us to look in five directions. First, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we look backwards. We look backwards. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, many of you who know me know that I am what you might call, what can be called a foodie. I love food. And I love all kinds of food, right? I love entering into cultures through food. I love, you know, Eastern food, East Asian food. I love American food, down in the South especially. I love African food. And, you know, I've, I've lived in different cultures, West and East, and really had the pleasure and, and joy of trying out different kinds of food. And one of the things that really fascinates me is how our food experiences can evoke certain feelings, how a certain meal can bring back certain memories. You know how this is. You know, I'm living here in Abu Dhabi, and, you know, if I go out and, and get McDonald's or a greasy hamburger somewhere, I'm always reminded of the United States. Or, or if I eat a masala dosa, I'm reminded of my time growing up in South India in the city of Chennai. Um, you know, you know, sometimes you go to this particular restaurant, you know, that represents your home country, and, you know, the, 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 they get it just right. And the smell and the taste all of a sudden takes you back to mama's cooking, right? Well, this is because food evokes feelings. Meals bring back memories. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives us a meal to evoke memory. For us to look back and remember what he has done for us. In the passage that we just read in Luke's gospel, Jesus was seated with his disciples to celebrate one such meal, a memorial meal, the feast of Passover. You see, the Israelites, if you remember the context of Passover, which our brother Temba read for us in Exodus 12, the Israelites were in slavery to Egypt. God was going to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh. He had brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians. And now there was this climactic act of judgment. 
where God was going to pass through Egypt in the night and put to death every firstborn of the Egyptians. But for the Israelites, they were commanded to sacrifice a lamb and to apply its blood on the entrances to their homes. And the Lord, when he passed through Egypt, would spare their firstborn. And they were to eat that lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, recognizing that the Lord had spared them, even though they themselves were sinners. And the Lord instituted this meal as something that the people of Israel would do year after year. For generations, they would celebrate this feast as a memorial to look back at how God rescued them from Egypt. God himself instituted to remind Israel that he spared them, not because they were without sin, not because they were any different from the Egyptians, but because of his mercy and the blood of the Lamb. And they ate the Passover every year to remember that. So now we come back to the upper room where Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover. Jesus is going to eat this one last time. And as they remember God's act of salvation in the past, as they look back, Jesus gives them a new meal to remember. Because the next day, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be crucified. He would pour out his blood, dying on the cross, under the judgment of God, bearing the penalty of sin, so that those who repent of sin and believe in him would receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You see, just like the Passover meal reminded Israel of God's rescue of them from Egypt, the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper to remind us, to remind His people of how He's rescued us. But the Lord's Supper commemorates a far greater salvation. You see, the rescue from Egypt and the Passover were just a shadow, just a preview. God rescued His people from slavery to Pharaoh, but in Christ, God rescues us from slavery to sin. And so Jesus uses the occasion of the Passover meal to give his disciples a better meal that points to a better Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember him just as he commanded us. Do this in remembrance of me. We look back with thankful hearts to the cross. You know, maybe you're here and you're Roman Catholic, or you grew up Roman Catholic. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Roman Catholicism teaches that the bread and the wine actually transform literally into the body and blood of Jesus. And they teach that in the Mass, Jesus must be, uh, his sacrifice must be repeated over and over again in order for sins to be forgiven. But I, I want to show you that the Bible actually has no such idea. The Bible does not teach this. Uh, the Bible, in fact, teaches that Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It's perfect, as, as we've been seeing in our series through Leviticus. We don't need to repeat Jesus' sacrifice. It needs no improvement or repetition. Instead, we are to remember what he's done and relish the effects of his perfect sacrifice for us. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body given for sinners. The wine or grape juice symbolizes Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as we eat and drink these symbols, 
They point us to Jesus' life-giving sacrifice. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the gospel tangibly with our senses. As you taste the bread in your mouth, as you feel that bread in your mouth, you remember as real as this bread is in my mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and gave up his body so that we might have eternal life. As you taste the sweetness of the wine or the grape juice, we remember the sweetness of having our sins forgiven because Jesus poured out his blood for us. And as we remember, as we look back at what he has done, we are reminded of who we have become. Remember, you, brother or sister in Christ, you were an enemy of God. But now you've been adopted into his family. You stood condemned in your sin. But now you're counted righteous before God. You were a slave to sin. But now you've been set free to serve the living God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now you've been raised to newness of life in Christ. You were headed for eternal judgment in hell. But now you've been made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all of this because of Jesus. And if you're here this morning, dear non-Christian friend, and you haven't placed your trust in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, I want to call you to turn away from your sin and to trust in the Savior, to come to Jesus today and receive life and forgiveness of sins from him. And so at the Lord's Supper, we look back with thankful hearts at the cross. Thankfulness is how we come. By the way, this is why the Lord's Supper is often called the Eucharist. Because Eucharist comes from a word which means thanksgiving. We look back with thankful hearts at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But When we come to the Lord's table, we don't just remember what Jesus has done for us individually. No, we are coming and remembering together. This is an act of remembering together. Now, our dear pastor Wiley has shared with me that he is approaching a very important date in his life. He's going to be celebrating his 20th wedding anniversary soon. And I can guarantee you that on that day, you're not going to find Wiley going out to a restaurant all by himself, looking at pictures of his wedding on his iPhone and and, and eating a meal by himself and saying, oh, I remember that precious day when I got married. No. This is not something he does on his own. This is a special celebration and remembrance that must take place together and I guarantee you that you will find Wiley and his dear beloved wife Georgie of 20 years celebrating their union from 20 years back and looking back together at God's faithfulness. We remember together and and this is in every family celebration, is it not? It's an act of remembering together, not looking at pictures on the iPhone by yourself but gathering together and, and looking back at memories together. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a family meal. And that leads to the second way we must approach the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we look backward at what Christ has done. And second, we must look outward. At who? At what? At one another. Because this is a meal in which we are coming together to remember Jesus as a family. 
Now, this idea has been lost in our day because many Christians, especially evangelicals, I'm sad to say, think somehow that the Christian life is something that's just between me and Jesus. Uh, they think that the church has little or nothing to do with, uh, you know, our personal relationship with Jesus. It's simply an optional weekly event. Or maybe, you know, a little bit more, some, some people might think, yeah, the Christian life is Jesus and me, and the church exists uh, kind of like as this side entity to help me along a little bit. But that's not true. Because when we read the New Testament, we see that the Christian life is a, a three-way life between Jesus and me, and Jesus' people, the church, his blood-bought family. And when you have this mindset, this common mindset that minimizes the church, what happens is we begin to treat the Lord's Supper as some kind of private dinner date with Jesus, right? We come to the uh, Lord's table, and you know it's time for communion, and I close my eyes, and, and now this is my special moment between just Jesus and me. I remember what he's done for me in this special moment that I'm sharing with him. Brothers and sisters, that mindset actually misses the point, not just of the Lord's Supper, but of the entire Christian life. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to save individuals with no relation to one another. No, he died to save a people. He died so that sinners from all over the world, people from different ethnicities and, and languages, cultures, backgrounds, would be united together in him as God's worldwide family. Jesus shed his blood so that we would become his blood-bought brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. Notice what the New Testament says about the church being family. You are no longer strangers and aliens, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, of the family of God. Look at what Jesus says concerning the church, concerning his brothers and sisters. Uh, Hebrews 2, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Friends, when Christians call one another brother or sister, it's not simply a Christian way of being polite or warm or, or you know, when you forgot that person's name and you want to call them a brother. That, that's, that's not what it is. <laughs> no, brother or sister, we're using a precious title that reflects a spiritual reality that we truly are brothers and sisters, that we've been made brothers and sisters by the blood of Christ. He has saved us from the world and brought us into his family. And so if you've trusted in Jesus and committed your life to him, if you name him as your savior and Lord, may I appeal to you, may I suggest to you that you must be, you ought to commit yourself to other Christians through covenant membership in a local church. It's in the church that we together learn to live as disciples of Jesus. Friends, life together with other Christians is, is not just optional or bonus. Life together in committed relationships in the local church is, is not an optional thing according to the New Testament. No, it's basic obedience and it's for your good. The Lord's Supper is where we come and identify one another as the members of Christ's family. Now, if you wanted to know who the members of my family are, there's a few ways you could go about doing that, 
right? You could ask for all the birth certificates and, or the Emirates IDs and, and look at all the names and say, oh yeah, that's, that's the members of the Sequera family. It's one way. Whoever has the family name. The other way could be you just come to my house one evening for dinner and you look at who is it that is regularly seated around the family dinner table week, uh, day after day. And then you notice, oh, this, these are all members of one family. That's how baptism and the Lord's Supper work in the Christian life and in the church. In baptism, a Christian publicly identifies with Jesus, publicly identifies with Jesus' people, the church. And a church publicly affirms the believer and receives them into the family. Baptism is where you're receiving the family name. You've been born again, now you're getting the family name. You've become a citizen of the kingdom, now you're getting your passport. At the Lord's Supper, Christians renew their commitment both to Jesus and to one another. We affirm one another's ongoing faith in Jesus and our mutual membership in his family. It's a family meal. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important that the Lord's Supper should be taken only when a church is gathered, assembled, together. Now, many Christians tend to be misinformed on this point, and I myself was very misinformed on this. I think of many years ago uh, as a young, zealous Christian uh, who thought he knew everything but was quite misinformed. I had a number of Christian roommates, and I said, you know what, we need to celebrate and remember Jesus' death and uh, sacrifice for us. We're going to take the Lord's Supper at home. So I'd bring out my guitar, we'd sing a few hymns or worship songs, and then you know, I'd bring bread and, and we'd take grape juice and we'd all take communion and I would lead it. Th that is very, very unbiblical. Maybe you've heard of Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, who served himself. He's one of the first men on the moon and he served himself communion on the moon. Let me show you why the scripture actually points us away from this direction. It's very common now in our day. Many Christians are taking communion, sitting at home by themselves while watching a live stream or while actually being all scattered separately and, and connecting on Zoom and then taking this. Let me show you why the Bible points away from that. All right, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul here is giving instructions on communion, on how we are supposed to take it. Uh, these Corinthians were quite divided. And look at what Paul assumes about how they're going to take the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 17, When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Again in verse 18, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And, and verse 20, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, because they were not waiting for one another. Notice Paul distinguishes between eating at home and eating in church, taking the Lord's Supper. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And notice again at the end of uh, chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And if you look at the original language there, this phrase, when you come together, it refers to a very specific act of assembling together, of gathering together. Paul even speaks about gathering together as a church. A church gathering together is different from any ordinary gathering of Christians. And according to Paul, the Lord's Supper ought to be shared together when assembled, gathered as a church. 
Just like a family shares a special family meal, only when the family is together, the Lord's Supper is reserved for when the church family is together. And so it's not for small groups. It's not for church Bible studies of only some people from the church. It, it's not for, you know, a, a group of Christians at a conference. It's not for teenagers off at a camp. It's not for people connected on Zoom. And it's not even for astronauts on the moon. The one exception that I would make, that I think we should make, is if a member of the body of Christ is, you know, in the hospital or shut in, I think we recognize them by taking a representative group of members from the church and visiting them, you know, weeping with those who weep, being present with them. And, and there I would say we could take communion with someone who is unable uh, to come and be gathered. You see, the Lord's Supper is the meal that identifies the members of Jesus' family, of his household. But the Bible goes even one step further. The Lord's Supper actually makes a group of believers in Christ into a local church. As we eat and drink together, we are pledging our allegiance to Christ and to one another. And in this meal, Jesus binds our hearts together as one. Look again at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We who are many become one body when we partake in the one bread. This means that when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we're seated at the dinner table of Jesus and we commune with Him. We have fellowship with Him. We also commune with one another. That's why the Lord's Supper is often called communion. You know, one of the wonderful, marvelous privileges I have in my life that I thank God for is being one of your pastors here at ECC. And one distinct moment stands out to me in the last four years of serving here as a shepherd. I remember uh, there was a couple of years ago where tensions were high between India and Pakistan, and they were at the brink of maybe war even. And that morning we had the Lord's Supper. And it just so happened that among those serving the Lord's Supper on the regular scheduled rotation, we had Victor Jacob from India and our brother Liaquat Masih from Pakistan. In the world, at war. In the church, blood-bought brothers in Christ. By his death, Jesus has united all of us in him. And so friends, remember when you come to the Lord's table, it's not just about you. The, the Christian life is not just about you. And so I want to encourage you, get to know others in the church. Go to Alwada Mall food court after the service and, and get to know your brothers and sisters. Maybe someone you haven't known or met before. Come to know their testimonies. Find out their stories. How did they come to know Jesus? How did Jesus bring his salvation into this brother's life or this sister's life? Talk to them. Learn about how they're growing in their walk with Jesus. Pray for them by name. Pray through the members directory. And when you come to take the Lord's Supper, look outward. Look at that brother over there or that sister over here and give thanks to God for others, for the family of God, for the local church. So we've seen that the Lord's Supper calls us to look backwards and remember Jesus' death, 
to look outwards, remembering that we're eating with one another. But it's even more than that. We are not just remembering Jesus' death in the past. We're also eating together, experiencing his presence now. We're experiencing his power in the present. And that leads to our third direction to look. We look backwards, we look outwards, and then we look upwards. We look upward toward our heavenly Savior who feeds our weary hearts with his grace. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is a meal of nourishment. You know, I already told you, and, and you know this, I love food. And I learned the hard way that you can love food too much in the wrong ways. When I moved to Abu Dhabi in 2017, you know, there's all kinds of food. So I kept eating and eating. And I kept growing and growing and kept getting unfit. And then when I climb up a flight of stairs, I run out of breath. And then uh, under challenge from my dear fellow pastors, I decided to, you know, alter my lifestyle a little bit. Let's, you know, start exercising. So I brought an exercise routine into my life. And very quickly I learned that eating whatever you want and trying to do very strenuous, very intense exercise, these don't go together, right? So I learned the common nutritional mantra, maybe you've heard this, food is fuel, and, and what you eat will fuel what you want to do, right? If you want to do something strenuous like CrossFit, you need to eat something that fuels that strenuous activity. If you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time in this hard and stormy world, you know that the Christian life is far more strenuous and demanding than any physical exercise routine. Thankfully, Jesus fuels us with nutritious food, with the food of his word, with the food of his supper. The Lord's Supper nourishes us, strengthens our hearts, strengthens our faith as we walk with Jesus in the wilderness of this world. How does the Lord's Supper nourish our hearts? I want to show you Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at what the Lord says here. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There the Lord is promising a new covenant with his people. Not just the house of Israel, but the new Israel of people from many tribes and tongues and nations in Christ. And this new covenant, he says, will have the forgiveness, free and complete forgiveness of sins. It will have intimate knowledge of God and the power to obey Him because His law is on the hearts. When we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus established this new covenant by his death on the cross. This is why at the Lord's Supper he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Through Jesus, we become beneficiaries of all God's new covenant promises. So you're wondering, what is a covenant? And this is a very important biblical term. A covenant is a committed relationship marked by loyal love and built on binding promises. A committed relationship marked by loyal love and built on binding promises. And throughout the Bible, God always relates to his people through covenant relationships. And every covenant is usually accompanied by a covenant sign. That's a reminder of the covenant promises. 
So you think about God's uh, covenant uh, after the flood with Noah, when he promised not to uh, ever destroy the earth in a flood again, he gives them the sign of the rainbow. In his covenant with Abraham to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring, God gives the sign of circumcision. In his covenant with Israel, Passover is one of the covenant signs. Even in the human realm, we have this, right? You get married. Marriage is a covenant relationship as husband and wives uh, pledge themselves to one another. You have the covenant sign of wedding rings or something else, depending on what culture you're from. Well, God has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper as covenant signs in the new covenant to remind us of his faithfulness to his promises. And by visually pointing us to God's faithfulness, the Lord's Supper nourishes our faith and feeds our souls. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is there sitting with you spiritually and saying to you, you are forgiven. You can draw near. You have the power to obey God's word. By His grace, God imparts His grace to us when we come to this meal in faith. We come to this meal believing and we are given strength to keep on believing, to keep on growing, to keep on obeying and walking as disciples of Jesus. And I want to clarify, this is not, you know, some kind of magic, okay? So we ought not to come to communion, to the Lord's Supper in a, in a superstitious fashion, uh, thinking that, you know, by this ritual automatically something magical will happen and I'll be blessed. Or, uh, you know, sometimes people might have this notion, uh, especially in prosperity uh, gospel circles, there's this idea that when you take communion, somehow the bread and, and the cup will magically bring healing in your body. There's no biblical support for those ideas. No, we are strengthened spiritually by faith, by understanding and believing, because we encounter Jesus spiritually and meet with him. And that's why it's so important that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we don't come casually, but that we come with proper self-examination in a worthy manner, with recognition for how God wants us to participate. That leads to our fourth direction to look. We look backwards at the cross. We look outward at one another. We look upward at our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look inward. We must look inward and examine ourselves because this is a meal for reflection. You know, a few years ago when I first came to Abu Dhabi, Pastor Jeremy and, and I and a number of all of us, uh, other pastors in the city were invited to the majlis of the Minister of Tolerance at that time, uh, Sheikh Nahyan. And before we went there, we were invited for a meal. Before we went, we had to submit Emirates IDs, passports. When we got there, there was a lot of security check. When we went in, there was a particular protocol and decorum that we had to follow. It was a meal with royalty. It's a serious thing. Brothers and sisters, when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to recognize we're dining with royalty. We need to remember we're seated at the table of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sheikh of Sheikhs, King Jesus himself. And like any meal with royalty, there are requirements and restrictions. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we, are, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Those are serious words. This isn't any ordinary meal. This is a family meal at the table of King Jesus. You see, in Corinth, these believers were disregarding one another. There was church division and disunity. The rich people were coming early. And and the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the context of a meal. They were eating all the food, drinking all the wine, even getting drunk. And not caring for the poorer people who were showing up later. With this kind of disunity, God judged them and disciplined them so that many of them fell sick and some even died. That's how seriously Jesus takes this meal. And so we need to take this meal seriously as well and recognize there are certain restrictions and requirements in place. First, what are the restrictions? Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, we would say since the Lord's Supper is Jesus' family meal, those who participate must be part of Jesus' family and publicly identified as so. And so I want to say there are three restrictions, belief, baptism, and belonging. First, belief. The Lord's Supper is for believers, born-again believers in Jesus, those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for eternal life. A non-Christian cannot participate in this meal because they haven't trusted in Jesus' death for their forgiveness. They're not a part of his family. You can't remember Jesus' death because you haven't trusted its significance for your life if you're not a Christian. So we must be believers. Second, we must be baptized. The Lord's Supper is for those who have been baptized. Not only should someone have trusted in Christ, they should have publicly identified with him And shown themselves to be a member of his family. Shown themselves to be a citizen of his kingdom through baptism. I told you baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two signs of the new covenant. Baptism is the initial sign of the covenant. It's where you get the family name. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. It's it's where you get the passport. You're a citizen of the kingdom and you're born again. Baptism does not save you. You're saved by faith in Jesus alone. But baptism identifies you as a citizen of the kingdom publicly. It identifies you as a member of the family. It's the initial sign of the covenant. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign of the covenant. So baptism is how you take the family name, which you must do, before you're seated at the family table. Baptism is how you get your passport for entry into the king's palace before you sit at the king's table. Even in the Old Testament, this was so. Uh, For instance, we said the Lord's Supper corresponds to the Passover meal. The Passover meal in the Old Testament was reserved for circumcised Israelites. If an uncircumcised foreigner, you can see this in Exodus chapter 12, if an uncircumcised foreigner wished to participate in the Passover meal, they had to receive the covenant sign of circumcision. 
So when an Israelite was born, they received the covenant sign of circumcision, marking them publicly as a member of the covenant people, and that was necessary before taking the covenant meal of Passover. When a Christian is born again through faith in Jesus, they must receive the covenant sign of baptism, marking you publicly as a member of the people of God, before you take the ongoing sign of the covenant, the Lord's Supper. Belief, baptism, third restriction, belonging. The Lord's Supper is for members in good standing of a local church. For members in good standing of a local church. Now, why this restriction? Brothers and sisters, membership in a local church is not just a man-made idea. It's not optional for the Christian life. No, committed covenant relationships, according to the New Testament is the context in which we live out our commitment to Jesus and his people. Before we sit at the family dinner table, we need to make sure that we've committed ourselves to be a part of the family. And that commitment is made through membership. So at ECC, if you're a member of ECC, we invite you, welcome you to partake. If you're not a member of ECC, that's okay if you're visiting or attending. We just ask that you would be someone who's committed in fellowship to some local church, to any church wherever you're from. It's very important for us to discern the body of Christ, to recognize the people of God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And in the context there, the body he's referring to is the local church, the body of Christ. These people were not discerning the importance of unity with their fellow believers. Membership and the Lord's Supper is how we identify who belongs to the family and who doesn't. This is why the Lord gives us church discipline as an action by which someone who is claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but their life doesn't reveal that. Their life shows something different. Their life shows unrepentant sin. Their lifestyle is inconsistent with what they say about their faith. This is why we act church discipline to remove them from membership. And this action has often been called excommunication, which means excommunion, which means they are prevented from taking the Lord's Supper because now they're no longer a member in good standing. So someone under church discipline who's been excommunicated cannot take this meal. So those are the restrictions on who can participate. God's word doesn't stop there. It also places requirements on those of us who do participate. And to understand these requirements, again, we need to consider what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11. He says a person must examine himself, that we must judge ourselves truly, that we must discern the body Verse 29. Again, the context in Corinth is that these people were coming to the Lord's Supper without concern for unity with their fellow church members. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we must come in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must examine ourselves to ensure that we're not living in bitterness or in broken relationships with someone and that we're not walking in any unrepentant sin. Now, you know, some people sometimes, uh, the self-examination can be taken too far, right? And, and that's common. Sometimes people say, am I worthy? Am I worthy? You look in yourself and like, oh, I don't know, maybe there's something. And, uh, you know, you can't take that too far. 
The truth is, we're all unworthy sinners in need of grace. But self-examination, when done in light of the gospel, is a good thing. Our lives are often busy and noisy. The Lord's Supper gives us the opportunity to slow down, reflect, consider our hearts. Each time we come to the table, we're given the opportunity to revive our faith in Jesus, to resolve to walk in repentance and holiness and love, to go and reconcile relationships that have been broken in the body of Christ. And so when you come, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, am I trusting in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice alone? Are there sins that I need to confess and repent of today? Am I living in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, I've seen cases as a pastor where people will come to the church and, you know, one, they, they have a broken relationship and not reconcile. One person will sit here, the other one will sit far away over there. They won't talk to each other. When going out, it's kind of like, you know, I don't see them. And, and then they take the, the Lord's Supper. Friends, this is wrong. And, and we should use the opportunity to say, oh, maybe before I participate today, I need to go across the room to that person and give them a side hug and say, I forgive you or even ask for their forgiveness, that we come to the Lord's Supper in peace and in unity. Because you see, the unity that we share with one another and with Jesus at the Lord's Supper is a unity that will last forever. And that leads to our final direction that we must look. We look backwards at the cross. We look outward at one another. We look upward at our heavenly Savior. We look inward at our own hearts. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we look forward. We look forward because the Lord's Supper is a meal of anticipation. You know, I told you I love food. What I also love to do is I love to cook. And it's one of the ways I de-stress. I haven't been doing it lately, but, you know, this is the way I get in the kitchen and it's a long, elaborate process and cook some curry, you know, chicken or beef or whatever it is. It's all good. And and everybody loves what I cook. And I'm I'm getting de-stressed while Nishika is getting stressed. You know, and, and, and some of you are maybe benefic- have been beneficiaries of, of Aubrey's famous curries. And, and maybe you've come to the Sequera home. I, I know some of you have. And, you know, when, when you came over, you know, the food wasn't ready. And then you were made to wait 40 minutes. And, and you know, I'm like, it's, it's part of me making you grow in anticipation, right? Grow in a longing. Come on, come on. Get, get, you, you, we need to get excited about this. And, and, and then what I'll do is, you know, I take a, take a spoon here and, and bring a little bit curry. And it's like, yeah, you try some. You know, taste that. How does it taste? And it's like, oh, it's great. And then you're a piece of chicken there. Taste that. How does it taste? Oh, it's great. And then you can't wait. And then when the anticipation is built up enough, the meal is served. And everyone says, hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 11 for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus himself says, Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the wine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' perfect kingdom is coming. It's it's coming, that day is coming when there'll be no more death and and no more sickness, no more COVID-19, no more fears, no more tears. And the goal of creation, the goal of all of life will be fulfilled when we share fellowship, communion, face-to-face with God himself. And even now, our lives ought to be filled with longing 
with anticipation, with hunger, with hope for that day. And the Lord's Supper is a preview. This little meal of bread and, and grape juice is a foretaste. It's a lick of the spoon of that greater meal to come when all God's promises will be perfectly fulfilled. Listen to these words, Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. That's us. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, all in Christ, we have an invitation to this great banquet, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, not as guests, but we as the bride of Christ ourselves. And the Lord's Supper is a lick of the spoon of that marriage supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' perfect sacrifice And we pray that as we begin to take the Lord's Supper once again, you would prepare our hearts with longing for that day. You would unite our hearts with one another and grow our hope in the day when we'll be united with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.